Here's the new Cold War podcast with Edward Lucas. Britain is belatedly realising the extent of Chinese Communist Party penetration. That's the message of a new book, Hidden Hand, which I discussed in a lengthy essay for the London Times in early July 2020. Outsized masks on figures in traditional costumes, giant dirigibles highlighting travel and tourism, cheering expatriates waving the national flag, the Taiwanese presence was a cheerful and seemingly unremarkable feature of the Lord Mayor's show in 2018, and one of scores of such efforts from countries and companies involved in Britain's financial centre thronging the streets of the ancient city of London. What the participants in the festivities did not know was that this was the last year that Taiwan would be allowed to participate. In 2019, the Corporation of London, the ancient body that runs the Lord Mayor's annual shindig, withdrew the invitation to Taiwan. This was in deference to the mainland Chinese authorities who are set on isolating what they regard as a rebel province. The abrupt ban on participation exemplified the hidden grip that the Chinese Communist Party has on my country and the spinelessness of our institutions in resisting it. The move did prompt a modest furore, including questions in Parliament. Although it has no formal diplomatic relations with Britain, Taiwan is a friendly, democratic and prosperous country. It's a valued trading partner and a donor to good causes. Why should the Chinese Communist Party's neurotic prejudices dictate a British guest list? I pestered the show's organisers for an answer. In the end, they told me that the Lord Mayor's show is not a political event, in which case I asked why exclude a participant on nakedly political grounds. No answer. Such cases of Chinese interference abroad have been growing in number and audacity. Now a new book, Hidden Hand, lays bare the scale of the problem and its origins in the Chinese party state's hostile attitude to the outside world. The authors, both friends of mine, are Clive Hamilton, an Australian professor, and Marika Ulberg, a Berlin-based China watcher. Two years ago, Hamilton wrote another book, Silent Invasion. That was a chilling account of Chinese influence in his home country. Though the book was ultimately a bestseller, getting it published exemplified the problem. The first Australian publisher dropped it under Chinese pressure, and two others shunned it because of their dependence on Chinese printing contracts. That story is now repeating itself. Publication of the book in Britain, Canada and the United States has been delayed by legal threats from the 48 Group Club. That's a London-based outfit with its roots in a communist-era fan club that is now a cheerleader for Chinese-style capitalism. However, the book has been published in Australia and in Germany. Hidden Hand has been published, however, in Australia and in Germany. Having read it, I can tell you it's heavily sourced, crisply written and deeply alarming. Its central contention is that the Chinese Communist Party's ambitions are not confined to China. The party state in Berlin wants to shape the world, exporting its authoritarian norms around the globe. It attacks other countries not from outside, but within, silencing critics, undermining institutions and weakening resistance. That will come as a surprise to those who think that the Chinese leadership's main aim is the country's economic development, a goal that supposedly offers great benefits to other countries too. 
The book's forte is its depiction of the paranoid and hostile way that the Chinese party state regards and treats the outside world. This cocktail of bluff, cynicism and doublespeak has its roots in Leninist political warfare, such as the activities of the Soviet Comintern in the interwar era. This body used overt and clandestine means to subvert other countries in order to promote communism and further the Kremlin's foreign policy. All this rings bells with people like me who remember the Cold War, but it's mystifyingly unfamiliar to people who did not experience that era or forgotten about it. Amnesia and ignorance overlook the central role played by the Chinese Communist Party in its ideology and therefore foster a profoundly mistaken view of China. The authors unpick the huge efforts and capabilities of bodies with Orwellian names such as the United Front Work Department and the blandly named Chinese Students and Scholars Association. This supervises and enforces the party line on foreign campuses. Many of these outfits mask their status with multiple names or bureaucratic murk, but their battlegrounds are the economy, politics, media, think tanks and universities in every country in the world. Hidden Hand starts with North America, painting a dismaying picture of the greed and naivety of American and Canadian decision makers. Then it turns to Europe, where Britain is just one of the countries to have been bribed and browbeaten into lowering its defences and accepting Chinese vetoes on its decision making. A prudent approach to libel precludes me mentioning by name the notables the book says may have been nobbled. It does not allege that the conduct described is necessarily illegal. Indeed, at the time, it was in tune with British foreign policy, which at one point sought a new golden age in our relations with China. But, the authors argue, the effect of these people's behaviour is to change the destiny of this and other countries. The exceptionally bleak conclusion of the section on Britain deserves repeating in full. It goes like this. So entrenched are China's networks of influence among the establishment that Britain has passed the point of no return and any attempt to extricate itself from Beijing's orbit would probably fail. Hmm, we'll see about that. Elsewhere in the world, China's economic clout, particularly in promoting infrastructure projects, has reaped dividends too. Most countries treat economic contact as politically neutral and mutually beneficial, but that is not how Beijing sees it. As well as greed, the Chinese approach also ruthlessly exploits Western guilt about the imperialist adventures of the 19th century and the excesses of the Cold War. Any criticism of the Chinese Communist Party is dismissed as imperialist, racist McCarthyism, an insult to Chinese people everywhere. From the Communist point of view, free speech, even in foreign countries, is a menace. The authors quote a dictum attributed to Stalin, Ideas are more powerful than guns. We would not let our enemies have guns. Why should we let them have ideas? This chimes with the notorious document number nine, an internal party bulletin from 2013 that declared war on false ideological trends. These included constitutional democracy, universal values, civil society, neoliberalism, Western journalism, and indeed any criticism of the Chinese Communist Party. The regime's most powerful weapon is the projection of invincibility. Whether you like it or not, China is going to become the most powerful country in the world. If you accept this, you may be allowed to share in the profits. Resistance is not only futile, but risky. The authors cite a dispiriting blizzard of examples showing the success of this approach. Even if you have no connection with China, you can lose your job 
by offending the party state in Beijing. Marriott International, for example, fired Roy Jones, a junior employee in that hotel company's social media division, who used a work account to like a Twitter post that attracted Chinese ire. Universities, hungry for Chinese students and donations, put pressure on academics to temper criticism. Events that might incur Chinese wrath, for example, involving Taiwan, Tibet or the Tiananmen Square massacre, are discouraged or banned. Chinese influence is also exercised via the diaspora. Martin Thorley, a doctoral student at Nottingham University in Britain who helped research Hidden Hand, says Chinese students come to speak with him privately on contentious topics. They fear speaking openly will mean being reported by fellow students from the Chinese mainland. From the ethno-nationalist standpoint of the Beijing regime, Chinese ethnicity creates ties of loyalty whether you like it or not. In 2015, Gui Minhai, a Swedish author specialising in China, was abducted from Thailand. After extracting a confession from him, the authorities in February jailed him for 10 years on laughably flimsy espionage charges. His daughter Angela, who studies at Cambridge University and campaigns for him, has faced intimidation. She's experienced intrusive photography, including through the windows of her home, attempted burglary, meddling with her email, and a bizarre invitation to Stockholm where mysterious Chinese posing as businessmen, together with a now-disgraced Swedish diplomat, tried to browbeat her into cooperation. Now that worries about China are more mainstream, does she feel like saying, I told you so? I'm trying not to say that, but I do have feelings in that direction, she replies. Very polite. One of the most conspicuous parts of the party state's thought management project, as it's called, are the Chinese-financed Confucius Institutes. These are nominally apolitical outfits that teach Chinese language and culture. But they come with strings attached. Their staff and activities are not covered by local university procedures and rules. The contracts that set them up often include stipulations about prohibiting activities that break Chinese law. In effect, that's importing the laws of a dictatorship onto a campus in a Western country. These agreements can include remarkable micromanagement of employees' private lives, for example, banning them from practicing Falun Gong, a kind of spirituality whose adherents are harshly persecuted in China. Universities can hardly be blamed for this. In most Western countries, they've been told to be entrepreneurial. By taking Chinese money, they're simply responding to market signals. Other pressure can be exerted too, denying access or visas to China to scholars and researchers who do not toe the party line. The upshot of all these efforts is that critical study of China in universities and think tanks is curtailed. Chinese influence, in short, muffles our ability to understand Chinese influence, and therefore our ability to resist it. Hidden Hand is a good book, but it's misnamed in that the hand is hardly hidden. For those willing to notice, details of the Chinese mischief, bullying and meddling it describes have been going on in plain sight for years. Another flaw is that getting bigwigs hungry for cash and attention to serve on boards, pose for photos and pay gushing compliments to the Chinese leadership may be the start of serious influence operations, but mostly are not. The 48 Group Club, the focus of much of the controversy in Britain in recent weeks, may well be litigious self-regarding and naive. But from my dealings with the people involved, it does not seem to be the beating heart of a secret Chinese influence operation in this country. Similarly, the Chinese obsession with our aristocracy and royal family misunderstands how Britain works. 
Interestingly, Russia makes the same mistake now, as did the Nazi leadership in the 1930s. Far more worrying are the truly hidden Chinese activities, the bending of decision-making on issues such as the construction of nuclear power plants, accounting standards and the composition of stock market indices. Perhaps the most alarming Chinese espionage efforts are the comprehensive collection or theft of vast amounts of data, highlighted in a report last year by Samantha Hoffman of ASPE, an Australian think tank. Her report was called Engineering Global Consent, the Chinese Communist Party's Data-Driven Power Expansion, and I strongly recommend it. Chinese hackers, for example, a few years ago stole the American government's entire security clearance database, including details of many foreign officials. Other heists have harvested mobile phone data, credit references, financial records, social media behaviour and biometric information such as faces and fingerprints. The growth of the Internet of Things greatly increases the opportunities for such remote collection of personal data. The authorities in Beijing can now build dossiers on people who may think they have no connection with China. Once gained, the detailed insight into our lives can be the basis for more targeted surveillance, such as hacking computers and phones, and eventually blackmail or other forms of pressure. What the report calls tech-enhanced authoritarianism already solidifies the Chinese party state's grip at home. Now it's expanding globally. The book concludes with a rallying cry, urging democracies to stick together in the face of the Beijing regime's divide and rule tactics, to expose the activities of Chinese lobby groups, and to face down what it calls tantrum diplomacy. The authors also highlight the need to defang allegations of racism by involving Chinese people in the resistance to the Communist Party leadership. That would be welcome among the hard-pressed Chinese opposition activists living in exile in the West. For years, they've been led to feel that their presence is an embarrassment to their home governments. Perhaps now they'll be treated as an asset. Hidden Hand's publication chimes with a growing sense of alarm in Britain and a desire for a rethink. So, a good place to start might be with Taiwan, a majority Chinese model democracy that yearns for outside recognition and support. Perhaps the next Lord Mayor's show in November could abandon its kowtow and allow Taiwanese participants to join the festivities. That would show that China's writ does not run quite as smoothly in Britain as the power brokers in Beijing might assume. So, I asked the Corporation of London, and the response was word for word the same as last year. The Lord Mayor's show is the biggest and most colourful event in the city's calendar. It's not a political event. It's a family-oriented day out. But who defines political? The answer, it seems, now lies not here, but in Beijing. This is Edward Lucas with the New Cold War podcast. You can find more about me, my books and other publications at edwardlucas.com or follow me on Twitter at Edward Lucas. This has been a homegrown media production. For more on the New Cold War, please visit edwardlucas.com.